So tonight, continuing on with the Noble Eightfold Path, having in previous weeks spoken about uh, right view, right intention, as our means actually for undertaking this path, the journey of awakening, how there needs to be some wisdom in order to embark upon this path, and how sila, ethical conduct, lays the foundation for this path. Tonight, moving into the training of the mind, really tools that we work with on this path, that give power to it, that really help to bring about the maturation of wisdom. Within this aspect of the Eightfold Path, we have right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. These factors all work very closely together. And there's a a simile in the commentaries that expresses this. There are three boys that go to play in a park. And while they're walking along, they see a a tree which has flowering tops and decide they want to gather the flowers. But the flowers are beyond the reach of even the tallest boy. Then one friend bends down and offers his back. The tall boy climbs up, but still hesitates to reach for the flowers from fear of falling. So the third boy comes over and offers his shoulder for support. The first boy, standing on the back of the second boy, then leans on the shoulders of the third boy and reaches up and gathers the flowers. Said that the tall boy who picks the flowers represents concentration with its function to unify the mind. But to unify the mind, concentration needs support. The energy provided by right effort which is like the boy who offers his back. It also requires the stabilizing awareness provided by mindfulness, which is like the boy who offers his shoulder. When right concentration receives this support, it's then empowered by right effort and balanced by right mindfulness. It can then draw all of the scattered strands of thoughts in the mind and fix firmly on the object. So right effort, mindfulness, and concentration, all working collectively together in balance for the arising of insight. So tonight I'll probably just be speaking about effort and mindfulness. So right effort For many of us, effort can be a place of a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, uh, a place where we may often find ourselves struggling in our practice. Practice often, uh, we might find times where we have too little energy, have really have a problem making effort, just finding ourselves bounced around by sleepiness, 
um, dullness, apathy. And then at other times, the energy is so strong that we're almost in a tailspin because it's so abundant and um, feels out of balance. So what was the Buddha pointing towards when he spoke about right effort? And how can we learn to recognize and work with this factor of mind in our own practice? He spoke very specific, specifically about right effort as being the wholesome energy directed towards liberation, needing to be guided by right view and right intention. It's the effort or more momentum or momentum that we need to walk this path. In speaking about it, he said there were four great endeavors with right effort. The effort to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. The effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. The effort to arouse wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And the effort to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So looking at these, to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. We can do this temporarily by having deep states of concentration where the mind is absorbed and when the mind is absorbed, the hindrances don't arise. Or, as we do in Vipassana practice, we, where we work with this preventing of the unarisen, unwholesome mental states through bringing mindfulness to all of the sense doors so that we're not carried away by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Bringing that attentiveness to the experiences of mind and body, to be able to see them just as they are. This helps us to keep the sense doors restrained so we're not pulled into proliferation, so we're not pulled into the wanting, the desire, uh, desire for sense pleasure. In this way, mindfulness helps to protect us. We also can prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states when we live our lives in a way that um, is supportive to nourishing conditions of awakening, which we do through uh, ethical conduct, which we can do through simplifying our lives, which we can do through, uh, you know, even though on retreat here we've simplified our lives, we can do this also through not putting ourselves in 
the face continually of temptation. And, you know, that will come through the knowing of our own habituated mind states that we find ourselves being pulled into over and over again. So an example of this from my own experience was uh, I was doing a retreat, a three-month retreat, over at the retreat center, and I loved to walk in the dining hall. And it would often happen, especially in the mornings, that people would come in and make a cup of coffee. And I really love coffee. And when I would smell that coffee, it would just set off desire, craving, you know, and then every step, fighting that temptation. Why don't you just have a little cup of coffee now? I think your practice will benefit from it. You'll be much more alert. And so, you know, in seeing that, what a struggle this was making my practice, suddenly it dawned on me, I didn't need to walk in the dining room. I could walk somewhere else. For some of you, maybe it's that um, every day at a certain time, you're really struggling with sloth and torpor, sleepiness. Well, that might be a good time to come and sit in the hall rather than be sitting beside your bed, which is that constant pull of temptation. So we just find little ways that we can offer more protection so that these unwholesome states of mind don't arise through familiarity, through knowing our habituated mind states. But mindfulness and continuation of mindfulness will be what will be our main support, really staying attentive. And then there's no way for these um, mind states to take hold because mindfulness will protect us. So the second great endeavor is to abandon those unwholesome states of mind that have already arisen. And it will happen, despite our best efforts, that there will be unwholesome karmic fruits from the past that will arise, that we will uh, you know, find, at times, greed, hatred, and delusion present in the mind. So it, the endeavor is to learn to abandon these unwholesome mind states. And again, mindfulness. Often through the simple recognition that greed is present, that anger is present, that dullness is present, sleepiness. Just in the seeingness, we don't have to feed it. And often this is enough just to let go. We simply recognize. And sometimes they don't just abandon. They stay present. So then we learn to stay steady with mindfulness and to bring in the quality of investigation. 
to come to know the characteristics of this experience. To see, to touch, to feel, to know this experience without feeding it, but simply to know it as it is. And again, this will often lead to the abandoning because we're not feeding this state, uh, it withers, it dries, dries up. It has no hold, it has no footing in the mind. Sometimes it still persists. And then one of the suggestions from the Buddha is to ignore it, not to pay attention, not to give, give ourselves over to that mind state, but to look and see what else is present in our experience. <clears throat> if still it persists, to see if we can replace this unwholesome mind state with a wholesome mind state, or a wholesome thought. When attachment is present, we might take a moment to reflect on impermanence, which can help to loosen the grip of that attachment. If anger is present, we can turn the mind towards loving-kindness, tenderness, friendliness. It's in this place of practice that we learn to work with the antidotes to the hindrances, that we can take Um, quite an active, make an active turning of the mind towards that which is wholesome to help it come back into balance. If still we're lost in the grip, we can also reflect on the faults of the disturbing thoughts. In this way, reflecting on how harmful hurtful or damaging these unwholesome thoughts may be. And this in itself can bring up a lot of energy that will help to the mind state to release, to help us cease from fueling it. <clears throat> An example of this being there's a moment of anger And then we're really caught in the story about the anger. And we're caught in blame, judging. And there's, you know, such a a strong, compelling urge to be um, entangled in this scenario in the mind. In that moment, to just look and reflect on the impact of that anger how it's poisoning the mind in that moment, how we are suffering in the face of that anger. It helps us to move out of the story, the blame, the desire to lash out, 
and to see clearly how this is harmful, hurtful, causes pain. And in that, there may be the abandoning. The Buddha also talked about how, as a last resort, one might clench the teeth and push the tongue against the roof of the mouth and crush mind with mind. Sometimes we hear that description and uh, can seem almost confusing. And yet, there's a few things that can be pointed to in it. When Sayadaw Upandita was here, I think there's at least one person that was uh, sitting earlier this year with Sayadaw Upandita, he often used the term crushing uh, defilements. I used this very <laughs> term. And the commentaries actually talk about crushing an unwholesome mind state with a wholesome mind state. And how I experienced this was, you know, at times when um, I experienced it with fear, like fear was just so strong, and, you know, having tried all these different ways of being with it. And then there was just a sense of having to really drive the mind into the object of meditation, having to really plunge the mind with mindfulness into fear. And, you know, it did take a tremendous amount of energy, and it did have that sense of really having to come up against what was such a strong object, and just, but with a really wholesome base. You know, for me in that moment, there was mindfulness. Some people interpret it as suppression. And, you know, for me, again, that was like, ooh, suppression. You know, that, that seems um, not right. And then, you know, when I reflected on it, it's recognizing that in that moment, we don't have the power to really skillfully work with it. So in some way, it's having to have a deliberate, uh, really deliberate effort, really deliberate energy to move through it or put it aside. And, you know, if we're really kind of pushing it down, it's based upon a wholesome motivation to keep the mind in a wholesome place. And then if we continue to practice, there will come a point where the mind comes back into balance, has a strength, a stability, that can then later open to that unwholesome state to free the mind of that tendency. So the second endeavor was to abandon those unwholesome states that have already arisen. And the third is to arouse unarisen, wholesome states. And we do this through the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, which helps to cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, we're continually strengthening these factors in the mind, wholesome factors, as we stay steady in our practice, as we remain dedicated to 
awakening. And as these factors strengthen, we'll find that um, a lot of faith arises in the power of the practice, which really helps us to willingly apply effort and energy. And the last great endeavor is to maintain already arisen wholesome mental states. So there comes a point, there does come a point at times in practice when it is filled with wholesome mind states, filled with the seven factors of enlightenment. And so at this time we work to maintain these wholesome mind states. And it's described as to keep firmly in mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. And by doing so, the mind gains great stability until there is liberating insight. I know there's been times when I've heard about these four great endeavors of right effort, and uh, they didn't seem to mean so much to me. But over the years, they have come to me to seem to be a really practical application and a way to demystify what right effort is to really look at uh, preventing unwholesome mind states from arising, abandoning unwholesome mind states when they do arise, and the cultivation and maintenance of wholesome mind states. And so in any moment to be looking to see what is present in the mind, if it's unwholesome, abandoning, if it's wholesome, maintaining. I know earlier in my practice I had the idea that right effort was to just make this superhuman um, endeavor to stay continually mindful at all costs and had nothing to do with wholesome or unwholesome mind states. And, you know, in trying to just bring more and more effort into practice, uh, um, practice, uh, the effort being equated with intensity. And so looking for kind of a growing intensity in, in practice. And then through that, just really finding myself totally exhausted and then you know, really coming to realize that isn't what right effort is about at all. <clears throat> With that, also the noticing of uh, the ideas about practice and about right effort that uh, are painful, 
that lead us into trouble. And, you know, that can be, I remember sitting uh, with pain and just thinking I really needed to push through, endure, you know, right, get right through the pain and keeping my effort to stay in that mode of pushing with the pain rather than opening to the pain. Um, so in the pushing, I was cultivating the greed and not clearly seeing that. <clears throat> Another should that we might have as we come on a longer retreat at the Forest Refuge, as some of us are here doing, you know, where you know we might be here for three, six, nine, twelve months, um, is where we come with the idea that our effort or energy will look the same as it did in a ten-day retreat, where we think that we will come sit down and be able to you know have this uh, kind of effort that just accelerates through 10 days where you know we can really watch it grow every day and we think that that's what it'll look like and you know it just leads us to imagine after three months we'll be flying but it doesn't unfold that way and it isn't how we work with right effort here because there will be times when there's a great intensity and momentum to the practice and then there'll be times where that insight, whatever insight we've had, is integrating. And we might be mo- really working in a much more spacious manner at that time. And so if we're holding on to the idea of that intensity as being right effort, we'll start to really be judgmental of ourselves, hard on ourselves, and it will have nothing to do with right effort. It's just an idea. And so, you know, the effort that we put in on these long retreats will vary in intensity. And effort is so much about bringing to this moment whatever energy is needed simply to meet this moment. And it takes a receptivity of heart and mind to be able to feel that, to be in touch with it. Skiing is uh, an example that always comes up for me around right effort. Uh, Because, you know, when you're skiing, you ski in all kinds of conditions. And, you know, you can go out on the slopes, and uh, if it's icy, you can't put much of an edge. You can't put much effort into your turn, or you'll spin on your face. Or if uh, there's powder, you kind of just have to feel your way into the turn. And, you know, um, there's a moment kind of when the the snow pushes back and that's like just enough effort. And then there's times when you can carve those turns really beautifully and exquisitely. But you have to stay present moment by moment by moment to feel it. Because even on one run in skiing that you can hit hard pack, you can hit ice, you can hit powder, um, you can hit deep slush. I mean, and so it's just that responsiveness to what it's going to take to connect in that moment. <clears throat> and there's no magic formula to this. But simplifying it through just looking to see what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. 
keeping it on that level. And, you know, so that doesn't mean that we're greedily seeking wholesome mind states. Because if we're doing that, greed is what is present. But that we're doing so through being attentive to what is present, to, to abandoning that which is going to take us into further suffering. <clears throat> meeting the moment in our practice with right effort, seeing how this changes, the effort needed to meet the moment. It's important to understand that this effort is generated from within. It's not imposed through the shoulds, the ideals. But it comes, it has a close link with faith, with, uh, through seeing for ourselves what is possible in practice and how that has an energizing quality that allows us to apply our effort, our energy. When we do so, this brings a great vitality to our practice, a great sense of discovery. The next factor of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. And we talk a lot about mindfulness. There's probably not a talk goes by where we don't speak about mindfulness in some way because it is so essential. <clears throat> so what is this mindfulness that we speak of over and over again? Mindfulness is the simple, clear illumination of life. And illumination that is free of analysis, judgments, comments, or stories of our lives. It's a purity of experience. Really letting the mind touch experience and the knowing of its qualities. It's reflective without adding anything to this experience, without taking anything away from it. You might get a sense that when mindfulness is strong, it's very restful because we aren't struggling with what is known in that moment. This brings a stability to the mind where it's not wobbling. Simple connection. It's not pulled into reactivity. An ability to be present and to know of the experience 
in the present moment. And this brings about a deep intimacy with life, an intimacy that is born of connection. So many times people are afraid of becoming mindful, thinking that it will mean that they will miss out, (coughs) that they'll lose something. And yet, mindfulness itself brings us into a greater connection with life. You know, in those moments where we're mindful, in a moment of touching, we know softness, coolness, warmth. There's a deep connection with the experience. In a moment of seeing, there's color, form. In a moment of hearing, the vibrations being deeply felt and experienced. And with these experiences, there's no distortion. Life as it is, being known, being experienced, life moving through us, And mindfulness has no preferences. It allows us to open to whatever is happening in our experience, whatever we may be doing, whether we're sitting on the cushion, being with the breath, whether there's loud clattering sounds around us, whether we're walking, whether we're eating, bathing. Mindfulness can be present through all of these events. In Pali, the word is sati, and it means to bring to mind or to bear in mind. So mindfulness is the bringing the mind to our experience. You know, whether it is the breath, the body, sensations, hearing, sounds, smells, whatever it may be, we keep bringing our attention to these experiences. And we find within mindfulness that there are two ingredients. The first is the active ingredient, which is the turning uh, of our attention to the experience, bringing the mind to bear on the experience. And then this is accompanied by a second ingredient, which has a passive quality, which is being able to see things just as they are. So with the first ingredient of mindfulness, the active ingredient, the bringing the mind to experience. It's the memory to remember, the memory to be present, the memory to connect with experience. And this is very difficult, very challenging, 
because of our habituated patterns of distraction, denial, being lost in life's story. As we sit here, we become aware of how hard it is to stay in the present, how so much of our time is spent dreaming about life, even you know, dreaming about our next walking period or dreaming about uh, the deep insight that we're going to have. Or we, we get caught in the stories. And it's so difficult to stay in the now. And I'd like to share a story uh, that I read in Pema Chodron's book, uh, Comfortable with Uncertainty. There was once a lady who was arrogant and proud. She was determined to attain enlightenment. And she asked all the authorities how to go about it. She was told, well, if you climb to the top of this very high mountain, you will find a cave there. Sitting inside that cave is a wise old woman, and she will tell you. Having endured great hardships, the lady finally found this cave. And sure enough, sitting there was a gentle, spiritual-looking old woman in white clothing who smiled beautifully. Overcome with awe and respect, the lady prostrated at the feet of this old woman and said, I want to attain enlightenment. Show me how. And the wise woman looked at her and asked sweetly, Are you sure you want to attain enlightenment? And the woman said, Of course I am sure. Whereupon the smiling woman turned into a demon, stood up, brandishing a great big stick, and started chasing her, saying, Now, now, now! And for the rest of her life, that lady could never get away from the demon who was always saying, now. (laughs) And Pema Chodron goes on to say, now, that's the key. Mindfulness trains us to be awake and alive, fully curious about now. The out-breath is now the in-breath, is now. Waking up from our fantasies is now. And even the fantasies are now. The more you can be completely now, the more you realize that you're always standing in the middle of a sacred circle. It's no small affair, whether you're brushing your teeth or cooling your food or wiping your bottom. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it now. So mindfulness, bringing our attention to the now. In a retreat setting, there are a few things we can do to support this memory to remember, to come back, to be in the now. One is the postures of the body. Now, the Buddha talked about working with the four postures of the body. And they actually, as we become aware of them, offer uh, support in remembering to come back. And we see this in how when we're sitting and we've been daydreaming and then suddenly we're aware of the posture of sitting and it reminds us that we're meditating. Or when we're walking back and forth. Uh, And as we walk back and forth and maybe again lost in thought and then suddenly the framework of not being going anywhere through the walking but just walking back and forth helps us to remember to come back. 
if we're practicing laying down. This too can help us to remember. Um, you know, I found with laying down to hold the hand up. And, you know, you forget, and then what's this hand doing here? Oh, yeah, meditating. Come back. <clears throat> and standing. We don't often stand. I don't know if we've given much instruction in our talks about standing meditation. But it, too, is a worthwhile form of practice. And as we're standing, we simply open to our experiences in just the same way we do in sitting. And the standing posture will certainly remind us, because it's so rare in our lives that we simply stand. So the posture is helping us to remember to come back. Also, making the effort to slow down. This helps to bring us really close to the arising and passing away within the experiences of this mind and body. It helps us to see with more precision what is happening. You know, and this is very similar to how, you know, if you're spinning around uh, a bicycle wheel, it just looks like a wheel. But when it starts to slow down, we start to see the components of it. And when we start to slow down in our practice, we begin to see the breaking down of the solid sense of I through seeing the components of our experience. And when we start to really slow down, it supports this continuity of mindfulness. It helps to keep us steady, to remember to stay present in the now. Mental noting is also a um, way we can give support to strong perception, which is actually the proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness. And noting is a tool of practice, and like any tool, we have to learn to use it well. It can take some skill to be able to use mental noting, the labeling, you know, the, just the, the, the um, noting arises out, a moment where we see something clearly, and it's that kind of moment of recognition of what is being seen. And, you know, as we use it as a tool, we will find it helpful with things such as strong emotional states when we're in really turbulent water. It helps to give the steadiness uh, to being present in the now. And then we'll also find that at times it's not so helpful when mindfulness is already strong, connecting effortlessly with the quickly changing flow of experience. And at these times it's really just to let it go, to let this tool of noting um, go. <clears throat> it also helps to serve as a, a reflector at times where we may become disconnected. And, you know, we might notice that when we're walking and we're noting right, left, and then as we note left, we notice that it's really the right foot that's stepping, you know, that we have become disconnected from our experience. Or sometimes it will 
help us to notice if mind states are creeping in that we haven't detected, such as, uh, you know, when uh, we notice that the tone of the mental note, and maybe the tone is reflecting that aversion is present in the experience. It doesn't have that non or that simply reflective quality to it, but there's some reaction, reactivity to the experience. We will often struggle with the memory to remember, to come back, to connect with our experience at times when there's a lot of pain and suffering, uh, when we would like to just fall into our habits of denial, of disconnecting. And these habits come about because in the past we didn't know how to skillfully connect with these mind states. And so as a means of working with them, that we did deny, disconnect, uh, cut ourselves off from. But mindfulness gives us the tool to open to our deepest pain without being overwhelmed by it. It helps us to gain that steadiness of mind that is needed in opening to our deepest pain. And this brings us into a joyful aspect of mindfulness, that it helps us to shine the torch of awareness on the shadows of our minds, to really illuminate the darkness, the places we've had to cut off from, and to be able to live in uh, full light of awareness. And at first it's scary, it's terrifying, but as we bring in mindfulness, as we gain stability in being able to see things just as they are, these fearful places become diminished. We begin to see clearly. And the second ingredient of mindfulness is the passive um, one, and that of just being able to see things just as they are, which holds within it the quality of acceptance, holds a non-reactivity, a mirror-like quality. And this is such a great relief. The Buddha, in speaking about mindfulness, speaking about the four foundations of mindfulness, which we work with over and over again in our practice, working with mindfulness of the body. We work with this a lot in our practice, the breath, sensations in the body, 
really being grounded in the body, and the body being a place where we often have a strong sense of self. So learning to be present to this body helps to break down the solid sense of I. The second foundation, mindfulness of feelings, being aware of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is present in each experience. This really helps us to work with habituated tendencies of moving towards that which is pleasant, moving away from that which is unpleasant, or um, the habit to disconnect when there's nothing that's pulling us, uh, when there's nothing that's really grabbing our attention helps us to cultivate a wakeful experience of life. The third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind or consciousness, including the different colorations of consciousness, such as greed, hatred, delusion, the contracted or distracted mind, concentrated mind or unconcentrated mind. Um, can also describe this as the atmosphere of the mind, we can see the importance of learning to recognize these colorations of consciousness by recognizing how our views of life so color the way we live our lives. And so being able to recognize when anger is present. If we don't, we see how our actions are based upon anger and how this has an effect and impact. The last foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, often translated as mindfulness of mind objects. This can at times lead to confusion because it doesn't just refer to mind objects but also to the physical body. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as mindfulness of phenomena, the objects of experience. And the Buddha described this in ways of Uh, being mindful of the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the six sense doors, both internally and externally, and the five places of clinging, and uh, culminates in the four noble truths. And, you know, we don't have to hold within us uh, these lists, but really when we uh, bring mindfulness to the experiences of mind and body, we will come to see things just as they are. And these four foundations of mindfulness cover all aspects of our experience. It means that mindfulness can be taken into all corners of our lives. There's no time in life when mindfulness uh, isn't available to us by bringing our attention to the experience. Mindfulness becomes greatly strengthened when we can link one moment of mindfulness with another moment of mindfulness, having the continuity of mindfulness. 
as we work with strengthening the continuity of mindfulness, to remember that we can only do this moment by moment. I found, you know, if I tried to plan, uh, you know, a whole sitting of being mindful, it just led to disappointment. But to just keep turning up moment by moment. Mindfulness also has a protective quality. And this protection operates in a couple of different ways. It helps us to see the consequences of our actions when we stay present to what it is we are doing. And this, in turn, helps us to be able to distinguish what will lead to further suffering and what leads to the alleviation of suffering. We begin to see how deeply connected we are with the world. And, you know, as we pay attention, we can see it in uh, little ways, like just seeing how the weather has such an effect. How, you know, on a dull, dreary day, the weather can affect our mind states. It can affect uh, what we wear. It can affect what we do. You know, often on a cold, chilling day outside, we're not so uh, desirous to go outside and walk. We might stay inside more. Just a simple thing like the weather um, can have a strong impact. And as we bring mindfulness, we become much more aware of the impact of what we do what we say. So it helps us to bring this heedfulness to our lives, which helps us to become impeccable in the way we live our lives. Mindfulness has another role of protection in that in our practice, where at times we're working with the cultivation of the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, we'll find that uh, when things start to get out of balance, it will be mindfulness that will let us know. An example of this is that we're, we're sitting and we might be feeling a lot of calmness, and then at some point the calmness starts to drift into sluggishness. And it's through mindfulness that we will recognize this. And so it protects us, it helps us, it supports us. Mindfulness is said to be the master key, the key through which we can come to know the mind. Knowing the mind, we can begin to see that which leads to more suffering and that which leads to the end of suffering. And then we discover for ourselves the path to free the mind. In speaking of mindfulness, I'd like to emphasize the simplicity of it. 
in a moment of seeing, just to see, in a moment of touching, just to touch, in a moment of tasting, just the tasting, in a moment of hearing, just the hearing. Seeing if we can rest in this simplicity, just this experience with no overlays, nothing extra. Coming back to life in its simplicity, which takes us into a deep interconnection with all life through just this. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings rest in the deep ease of mindfulness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.